Please take your Bibles and join us in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7 today. Isaiah, chapter 7. What we've seen thus far in the book of Isaiah is a God who, first of all, is holy. In chapter 1 and verse 4, Isaiah calls him the Holy One of Israel. We saw then, as we considered chapter 1, that that is a unique term in Scripture, but Isaiah uses it 25 of the 27 times it's ever used. We've also seen that God is a God who judges in holiness. Again, in chapter 1, verse 4, he calls Israel a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, having forsaken the Lord. In their time of political and economic uncertainty, they turn away from God and they make alliances with foreign governments and with pagan kings, all the while pushing God away, pushing away his promise of love and power and protection. Rather than trust God, they trust in the plans and armies of those who do not know God. God invites them to reason together with him regarding their sinfulness and their unbelief so that they might be forgiven. But the people of God will have none of it. Instead, inviting the judgment of God upon them and upon their families. In chapter 6, last week, we saw Isaiah's description of his own encounter with the holiness of God, being invited into the throne room of God where his glory so filled the room that there was room for nothing else. There the seraphim proclaimed, as we just sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But again, Isaiah recounts the announcement of God to judge his people with unbelief dull of understanding, deaf ears, blinded eyes, and to bring catastrophic judgment upon the nation and the land so that every person in every city will be tragically under his refining fire. All the way to the very last phrase in chapter 6, the news is full of the righteous indignation and the judgment of a holy God upon his disobedient people. What we have seen thus far is that in spite of all the advantages, all the mercies, all the blessings, all the protections, all the provisions of this holy God, over and over and over again, across centuries of recorded history, his people are bored, disconnected, disenchanted, idolatrous, worldly, and full of compromise and complacency. And worst of all, they're unwilling to repent and return to him. This is obviously a recipe for this holy God to judge them to the uttermost and to be entirely justified in doing so. But, and that's a very important conjunction. As we read last week, there is a phrase at the end of chapter 6, verse 13. The picture in chapter 6, verse 11, verse 12, and almost all of chapter 13, rather verse 13, is one of desolation and judgment where the judging fire of God consumes the land and burns it all down. Not once, but twice. It's a scarred and bitter landscape. And yet there at the end of verse 13 is that phrase, 
the holy seed is its stump. We're all familiar with what a burned out forest looks like. We've seen that. Can you imagine twice burned forest? Most of us have never seen that. But what we do know is that the land is full of nothing but ash and a few stumps. And what we recognize is that if we were to drive by a year later, that once burned out landscape would be teeming with life. Because in that stump, in that ground where we can't see, there remains life. And God uses that metaphor at the end of chapter 6, and he says, even though I destroy you for your unbelief and for your unwillingness to repent, I will not utterly destroy you because there is a seed remaining. <laughs> Understanding this picture, the judging fire torches it all, but the seed remains, and the seed is there to repopulate God's people. The stump will spring to life when the fire has done its work. <clears throat> the seed will be the savior of the people of God. The line will not end. The reputation of the holiness of God will be restored and rebuilt through his own holy seed. You will recall that God made a promise in Genesis chapter 3 that I have told you before controls the entire Bible. You want to understand the Bible? You must understand Genesis chapter 3. That is the chapter where Adam and Eve sin and God brings judgment. And he makes a promise, God does, there in Genesis 3, that the seed of the woman would one day battle against the serpent that seeks to kill her and to destroy the plan of God for mankind. The Bible is, first and foremost, the record of God's plan to rescue mankind from death and destruction through the means of his own seed. He promises King David in 2 Samuel 7 that his seed shall rule the throne of God's people forever and ever, and nothing, nothing shall thwart his plan to create, protect, and prosper a people peculiar to him, or said another way, holy unto a holy God. That brings us to Isaiah 7. Ahaz is the king of Judah. You'll recall in chapter 1, Isaiah said he prophesied under the reign of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Three of those are good men, but there is a fourth, and that is this guy, Ahaz. He is not a good man. 2 Kings 16 tells us that he has abandoned the faith of his father, Jotham, and his grandfather, Uzziah, and he has fallen in love with the power and culture of Assyria. He has imported the worship practices of Assyria into Jerusalem and even sacrificed his own son in an act of allegiance to a pagan god. But we see that a do-nothing faith in a do-nothing god is no match for the sorrows and pains of a broken world, whether you're a king or not because he's in trouble 
real trouble in Isaiah chapter 7. But he sits on the throne of King David. He is the ruler of the people of God. God is at work even amongst the disobedient, it turns out. Israel is his brother to the north and is greatly threatened by Assyria, the great nation off to the east. And he makes an alliance with the king of Syria. I know Assyria and Syria seem like the same to us, but in fact they are not. Assyria is the giant and Syria is merely a pup compared to Assyria. So now Israel and Syria have made an alliance against the king of Assyria and they've come against Ahaz, the king of Judah in Jerusalem in an effort to compel Judah to make their twosome a threesome. If you could, you pardon this analogy, can you imagine Canada and the United States make an alliance against all of Europe? Europe is a big threat and Europe threatens Canada and the United States, and ultimately, let's just say Mexico. In this case, Ahaz is the ruler of the third down. So Ahaz would be the ruler of Mexico in our analogy. And the Canada and United States make an alliance, and they come against Mexico and say, we can't win against Assyria unless you go with us. So we're going to come, and we're going to overrun you. We're going to take your your throne. We're going to put our guy on your throne. That's the threat. Ahaz is the king of Judah. Israel and Syria are north of him. They want him to join with them so that they can defeat Assyria. Isaiah steps into the conversation and he tells Ahaz, don't do it. Don't make an alliance with them and don't make an alliance with Assyria. It turns out that Ahaz has three options. We're going to see this. He, he, number one, he can surrender. He can join with Israel and Syria to his north, but if he does so, he'll be killed. They'll take his throne. They'll put their own man on the throne. That's obviously not an option. Secondly, he could make an alliance with Assyria the big nation off to the northeast that is taking captives all over the world. Assyria is the 800-pound gorilla. I can make an alliance with them, and that would defend my borders from Israel and Syria, and I'll be okay. And in fact, that's what Ahaz is going to do. But there is a third option, which is trust God. And don't make alliances with pagans. Because God has promised to keep his seed on the throne forever. And you either believe God and act like it, or you don't. And you face the judgment of God. So that brings us to Isaiah chapter 7. All of that is introduction. Let's read verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. 
When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. Ephraim, another word for Israel. So uh, there's, a, there's two countries to his north that are in league against him. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stump of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim, again Israel, will be shattered from being a people and the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, don't do business with those guys. They're short-timers. They're not going to be here long. I have spoken. I am the Lord. Which brings us to verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as the heaven. Listen, there's a blank check, and then there is a really blank check. Ahaz is given the ultimate blank check. Ask me anything. It can be as deep as the grave. It can be as high as heaven. I don't care. Your, your imagination can just run wild. Ask me anything for a sign. But Ahaz says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Do you know where he got that? That's the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says, don't do that. Don't put the Lord to the test. Now, I want you to know, that is pompous piety right there. That is false humility. How do we know that? Well, he's already sacrificed his children to a foreign god. He's already acting as an unbeliever. And now he's going to quote the Bible. There are all kinds of people who quote the Bible, even though their lives show no interest in actually obeying the Bible. Be careful of the person that pays no attention to actually doing the Bible. And by the way, that's a misapplication of this particular text. I will not put the Lord to the test. Nobody asks you to. God asks you to ask him for a sign. In other words, you're not testing the Lord. You're actually agreeing with the Lord. And yet he quotes this verse. I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Oh, I am so tired of listening to your pompous piety. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, and when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, 
For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. God will bring the king of Assyria upon your land. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that's in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and they will settle in the street, steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and all the thorn bushes and all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the, hair, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will be swept away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk they will give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there is to, used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. As for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. I'm going to give you a sign, whether you want one or not. Whether you understand one or not, I'm going to give you a sign. And that sign, that sign will remind you that there is a God whose holiness is at stake. Now, we know this prophecy. We are Christian people. And we know that this prophecy is applied to the Lord Jesus. In the book of Matthew, Matthew quotes Isaiah. And he reminds us that, in fact, Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Verse 18 of chapter 1. Now the birth of Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she's found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So what we have in Isaiah chapter 7 is a prophecy given first of all, to Ahaz, the pagan king. And then secondly, ultimately, to us as those who need a Savior. This seed, this seed of a virgin prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7, actually mentioned first in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 13, the holy seed is its stump. He is clear in letting us know that God is going to intervene directly into the unbelief of this king. He's going to do so powerfully, and he's going to do so supernaturally. He's going to do so with not just any seed, but a holy seed, 
Uh, seed set apart unto him, a seed that is different. It's not going to be just any child. It's going to be a holy child. God is about to bring judgment upon the house of Ahaz, and he's going to bring that judgment in such a way that the seed of God prophesied centuries prior in Genesis 3, the seed of God, which will then do battle against the serpent, the seed of God is threatened by the unbelief of this king. How can we survive if he's the king? How can we survive if he keeps tearing down the altars of God and bringing in these pagan altars? How can we survive if we allow him to keep doing what he's doing? The answer is because he's not ultimately in charge of the promise. He's a bit player on the board. That's all he is. That's all any of us are. The promise is dictated by God. It's his strength that will complete the plan. It's his resolve. It's his wisdom. It's his holiness that will accomplish it. The power of God is the power of God. I want to suggest to you that this story, this circumstance, is familiar to us because of our New Testament understanding. We don't know exactly, the Bible doesn't give us the details of how this prophecy was fulfilled for the first time. We don't know the details beyond that, and anything we offer is speculation. But the prophecy is that this girl will bear a son, and that before the son can even grow up to eat what we would call table food, before the son can even grow up to that age, God will already remove the threat of these foreign countries to the north, specifically Israel and Syria. He's not going to remove the threat of Assyria, the big country, because they're going to be the ones who are going to come and eventually destroy, or actually they're going to be destroyed, and then he'll bring, ultimately bring Babylon against them. But in the end, the, the Scripture tells us that God has this sign and that God's going to give this sign. A couple of things stand out here as we read this story. Number one, God is committed to his plan even when we're not. Never forget that. Ultimately, our comfort today is not in our ability, not in our strength, not in our uh, cleverness, not in our manipulations. Always reminded of this passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. There, Paul writes to the Corinthians, it says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, and because of him, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You need to chew on that one again and again and again. Remember this, that ultimately it is not 
It is not the conniving of men, the cleverness of men, the strategizing of men, the tactics of men that bring about peace or comfort for the human soul. Our problem is ultimately not going to be fixed by anything other than God. Ultimately, our peace, our comfort, our joy, our hope, and our eternal life is based upon the work of God. He makes clear, Paul does, in 1 Corinthians, that God chooses what is weak in order to bring down those who perceive themselves to be not weak. He, he uses that which is foolish to bring down those who perceive themselves to be wise. He does so because God will not share his glory with anybody else. The plan of God is to have more and more of God. Now, the challenge of that for our world, for our circumstance here today in the 21st century has never been more clear, it seems to me. Turns out the fix for what ails us is not found in man. It's not found in the world. It's not found in the culture. The real problem of man, the ultimate problem of man, not defined by how much money they have or even how healthy they are. The real problem of man is that he does not know God and that he does not follow God and he does not honor God. And that, my friends, is a gigantic problem. How gigantic, you say? Well, you read Isaiah, and it turns out that he's holy. I mean, like real holy. He's holy, holy, holy. And we're not. No one is. And the problem is not ultimately that there's not a solution found in man because God remedies that. It turns out God's going to send his holy seed and he's going to repopulate. God's going to send his holy seed. He's going to rescue. God's going to send his holy seed. And as Paul says again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, from this seed, Jesus Christ, who Matthew tells us is in fact the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. From this seed, Jesus will become for us righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Which means that as a Christian person today, I'm a Christian not because of the accomplishments of Greg or the accomplishments of you or anybody that looks like you or me. I am a Christian today because of the work of God in providing his seed who would come to me and cause me to be born again. Cause me to repopulate. Cause me to come back to life. Having been judged a sinner, having been judged an unbeliever, having been judged as one who does not follow God in a holy manner, 
I am in trouble. And it is not regular trouble. It is eternal trouble. I am under the condemnation of God. I am under the condemnation of the Word of God. And without hope, unless God intervenes in my life. Your only hope is that God will send a rescuer, that God will send his seed to repopulate his people. Because God is about to judge them for their stubbornness and their unwillingness to repent and their unwillingness to, they, to, to be committed to him as the Holy One of Israel. Why would you shop for another God? Why would you shop for another ideology? Why would you shop for another philosophy? Why would you shop for some other surrogate who would somehow provide for you death? Death, destruction. I always think of it this way. If you go to Israel, you know, they have the Sea of Galilee. It teems with fish, lots of fish stories in the Bible. If you go just a little south of there, you have the Dead Sea. Same part of the world, same river, Jordan, all that. But in the Dead Sea, there are no fish. Well, let's assume for the sake of conversation, you're a fisherman. And you fish in the Sea of Galilee and you catch fish and you say, this is great. I love fishing over here. Israel's a place to be for fishermen. Let's come, let's come back again and again and again. So next time you say, I want to go somewhere else, you know, try my luck somewhere else. Let's go down to the Dead Sea. You reckon you could get a guide for the Dead Sea? You reckon they would laugh at you if you brought your boat in there and said, let's, let's go fishing? Well, they wouldn't even laugh at you. I'm pretty sure. They'd shoot you to put you out of your misery. Because it's pretty silly, isn't it? To go fishing where there's no fish. It's pretty silly to build a life where there's no hope. It's pretty silly to leave the God of Israel for a statue or for an idea or even for your own selfish, sinful heart. It's pretty silly, pretty foolish. In fact, it's deadly. So this is the warning that Isaiah gives to Ahaz. If you don't repent, God's going to bring judgment. He pictures it again and again and again throughout this book. Let me give you three applications very quickly. Number one, all faith is based upon the past, but is applied in the present. All faith is based upon the past, but it is applied in the present. I want you to note how he phrases this in the book of Isaiah chapter 7. He says to Isaiah, verse 9, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Ask for a sign. And to which Ahaz says, I will not. I will not ask because I will not put the Lord to the test. 
In other words, Ahaz has an awareness of the Bible. He's quoting Deuteronomy here. He has an awareness of the history of the Bible, of the faithfulness of God. He's aware that he sits on the throne of David. He's aware of the faith of his father, Jotham, and his grandfather, Uzziah. He's aware of the progress that has been made in their nation, the very fact that they have a nation, the very fact that they have the prosperity they have. It's because God has put his hand on them. He's heard all these stories, these stories, these stories, these stories. He's heard all of these evidences, as have we, right? We have, we've heard the promises of God. We've heard the testimony of others. We have seen, the, the, if you will, those who live according to a certain faith code. Because they believe these things, they actually do these things, and so forth. We look around, and we know that we are not in a vacuum, that we stand on the shoulders who have gone before us, people who heard those promises and believed those promises and trusted those promises. But your father's faith is not your faith. Your grandfather's faith is not your faith. Isaiah's faith is not Ahaz's faith. Ahaz's faith is not his father, Jotham's faith. Ultimately, all faith is based upon the past. We have seen the hand of God. We've seen the hand of God. Why did God give us the Old Testament? Because he says in the Old Testament again and 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 again that I've been here and you haven't. And you think this is all brand new and you're wrong. That I am faithful and I have proven myself faithful, faithful, faithful in the midst of people who are not, unfaith- are not faithful. So in the midst of all of these turkeys, I have proven myself to be a God who can be trusted. But yesterday's faith, your parents' faith, your grandparents' faith is not your faith. All faith is based upon the past, but it is applied in the present. It is applied in the now. The question is not what they did or even what we did. But the question is, what am I going to do now? How am I going to follow God? How am I going to believe God, hope in God, trust in God, act according to God? How am I going to abstain from sin? How am I going to turn away from sin? How am I going to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile? How am I going to love others, love my enemies, pray for those who use me and abuse me? How how am I going to live this Christian life? How? You're going to do it right now by believing the promises of God. Just like your grandparents did your parents did and others are doing right here right now i've often thought what's the value of the church well the value of the church is that you get to live as it were in a crucible where there are other people who are actually doing a better job of believing the promises of god than you and the fact that you're hanging out with people who are doing a better job motivates you to do better why do you need the church Because if you're left off to yourself, you're going to turn like a piece of charcoal taken out from a fire. You're going to fizzle out pretty quick. You need the church. And the church needs you. Secondly, don't underestimate God's resolve to his promises. Don't underestimate God's resolve to his promises. God made a promise here. He said, I'm going to send a child to a virgin. We don't know the historical 8th century B.C. reality of that. We don't know how that transpired there. But we know how it transpires in the 1st century. Matthew makes it clear. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. God's going to keep his promises. God's going to keep his promises. 
God's going to keep his promises. Don't ever underestimate the resolve of God to keep his promises. I was thinking as the choir was singing from Psalm 46, I was thinking about these verses. I made a mark then that I would read them now, so I'll read them here. Psalm 8, rather Psalm 46, verse 8. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And what is to be your reaction to that? Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And why do we believe that? Because he promised he would. Don't underestimate God's resolve to keep his promises. Don't underestimate it. But let me show you a counter to that, if I might. Invariably, as pastor, I'm talking with people all the time or contending with this, and this is my favorite illustration. You've heard me use it many times. Is you would think, well, he doesn't know many Bible stories because he keeps going back to the same three. Well, this is the one that most other people know, so I'm using the ones you know. I know a few more, but I really like this one. This is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel chapter 3. You'll remember the story. They were commanded to worship an image. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had issued an edict that you would have to submit to that and that you would have to worship this image. Well, these three, three Hebrew men, uh, often they're called children, actually, they're, they're men. They're, they're saying, we're not going to do it. And so that makes him mad. Nebuchadnezzar's a big and bad king, and he's, he's not going to put up with that. So in Daniel chapter 3, there's this argument, as it were, which is pretty one-sided, right? It's mostly the king. But these three Hebrew men say something that you should not miss. Verse 16, Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, and they said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. <laughs> That's pretty cocky right there. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But, and this is a conjunction that modern Christians refuse to embrace. I deal with this all the time. But, if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you set up. Wait a minute. You just said our God will deliver us. How can you now say, but if not? You're giving God an, an escape, an out clause here. And the, the, the way this works is God made a promise to me. He promised me that he would deliver me. Well, he promised that he would always be with us. We just sang about it, that we'll go through the fire and God will be with us. God will be our refuge and our strength. We just, we, we, we say these things, God will be with us, God will be with us, God will be with us. And we don't have a category called, well, what if it doesn't work out the way I want it to work out? 
That's the category that we don't give to God. We don't permit God to somehow not work it out the way we want to work it out. But that's precisely what these three Hebrew men say. I'm going to follow God, and he's going to deliver me. But if he doesn't, I'm still not going to compromise. I'm still not going to sin. I'm still not going to, going to beg for mercy from a pagan. I'm not going to do it. I've committed my way to God. I'm going to follow God. I've done the God thing. I'm going to keep doing the God thing. And there's no escape except death. That's the only escape. I'm going to fight to the end. I'm going to be faithful to the end. Don't underestimate God's resolve to keep his promises. You say, well, Brother Greg, in this situation, he rescues these three men. He certainly does. But I want you to know, friend, that history is full of the account of those that God did not rescue. And some of them, perhaps out of your own family, perhaps out of your own circumstance, your own situation, dare we say even out of our own church, that God chose not to rescue from dread disease or for some tragic circumstance or some difficult enemy. God keeps his promises even if we die. He keeps his promises. Now you've got to have a big head to get your mind around that. And I want you to think deeply about that. God speaks through Isaiah to this king in Isaiah chapter 7. And he says, I'm going to keep my promises. And here's how I'm going to do it. I've asked you to ask for something as a sign. High as the heaven, deep as the grave. Just ask. You won't ask. So I'm going to do something that you, you don't even have a, a category for. A virgin's going to have a baby. You don't have a category for that. And he didn't tell Ahaz this, but Matthew tells us this, that the baby is going to be the son of God. You don't have a category for that either. The point is, friend, when God keeps his promises, he really keeps them. He's not bound by your pea brain. He's not bound by your small thinking. He's not bound by what you can see, what you can understand, what you can figure out, what you can calculate. When God keeps his promises, God keeps his promises. And then lastly, I would just simply say, don't forget, Emmanuel means God with us. Matthew made sure we understood that in his gospel. Emmanuel is a Hebrew word that means God with us. That's my comfort today. I hope it's yours. That God is with us. That God is always with us. And he'll never leave us or forsake us. He'll never forget us. And you may be in a furnace walking through the fire. You may be in a lion's den. 
You may be in a sorrowful, sorrowful situation. You may be in a problem of your making. You may be in a problem of somebody else's making. You may be in a challenge that you never imagined you'd find yourself in. To you, I remind you, Emmanuel, God is with us. Oh, glory to God. He's with us. To the very end, he is with us. And one day, the God who's with us will invite us to be with him. And we shall fly away. Let us not forget that. Be faithful. A holy God demands it, and a holy God deserves it. Let us be faithful to believe him and to keep covenant with the one who loves us so. I hope you know him. Let's pray now. Father, we love you. We thank you for your constant care for us. Lord, we presume upon your grace so many times. We know of our sin. We know, Father, of our unfaithfulness. We know of our duplicity. We know of our complacency. We know of our apathy. We know, and we pray, Father, we would read this passage and we'd be stirred. I pray you would stir among us, Lord. You would awaken us. Whatever it is we've been dabbling with out of the world, I, f- I pray, Father, we'd forsake it, give it up, and run to God. Oh, God, give us grace. Thank you for the promise of Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you that he's come to produce in us that which we could never produce for ourselves, sanctification, glorification. Ultimately, Lord, our eternal life. Thank you. We love you so. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.